Lord, thank you for being good to us. Thank you for the worship. Thank you, God, for this opportunity to come together as a family. Pray bless Pastor Chris as he speaks. I pray, God, you would uh, just guide us to the truth that you would have us to hear and apply it to our life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Such a good song. Isn't that wonderful? Such, such wonderful music this morning. Thank you, worship team. Week in, week out. You all just bless us, and you volunteer your time, and you give so faithfully of it, and you bless us every single week. We want to say thank you so very much. Um, how is everybody doing today? Happy Sunday to you. Uh, who are you guys rooting for? Who cares? Commercials, that's right. Dilly dilly! Wait, you can't say that as a pastor. Okay, so here's, here's my thought this morning. Um, I, have to, I have to bring some reality. I have to bring some true news or where we're at as a church. Um, if you attend Firewheel, this is your home church. We've made a commitment to be more transparent and, and be just more direct with where we're at as a ministry. In December, I shared where we were at financially. Um, it, throughout 2017, just to praise, uh, I, have, I don't know if I've shared this with you yet, we made budget last year, which is wonderful as an organization and as a church, um, and we've been very um, stewardship-minded. I mean, we, we invest, we leverage resources that you entrust to us. We leverage uh, for kingdom and for ministry, and I, I pray that you were blessed in 2017. Pray your families were encouraged. I hope your, your kids were encouraged through children's ministry and student ministry and all the different areas where we serve, whether it's downtown Dallas or serving in Haiti or Dubai or down in Mexico through mission support. Um, I want to keep you up to date on where we're at as a church. So once a month, I'm going to bring to you just kind of like our financial standing. As a ministry, what we need weekly uh, just to operate, and many of you may not know this, we're not denominationally supported. Uh, all of the support comes from us as a community of believers. And this may seem overwhelming in number when you look at it on the individual level, but you've got to remember, we're a community. So we, we pool resources for kingdom purposes. And so what we need weekly is roughly 14200 We have We have cut our budget down to that, and that's where we can operate and do all the things that you've become accustomed to, plus more this year, some of the outreaches and things that we have planned. Um, our average weekly giving currently for the month of January was roughly 12200 and so that leaves us at a deficit during the month of January of, of a couple thousand dollars a week. Um, and so I'm just going to ask that you prayerfully consider if Firewheel is your home, if you get something beneficial out of being here, if this is a benefit to your family, I'm going to ask that you prayerfully consider uh, weekly support. Uh, a firewall. I believe it's a part of a growing Christian life that we support the work of ministry. Um, I'm not going to tell you how much. That's not my job, but I ask that you just pray about it. And if God so leads you uh, to invest, then we just want to say thank you. I want to thank you for the investment that you have given so far. You all are very generous, generous people. Uh, and it's a, it's a great privilege uh, to serve such a generous church. And so with that in mind, let's turn our attention to the scriptures. Everybody say word. We're going to be in Matthew, Word, Matthew chapter 18, um, and we are continuing our discussion of reconciliation and restoration, and what, what do we do with relationships that fracture, and, and as adults, family, we have to testify that there are people in our life uh, we've, we've fractured from, and I don't know what it is about adults, but we have this uncanny ability to like let relationships go and act like it doesn't hurt us, but e even though inside it, we're dying and it does hurt. And there's a hole the size of that person in our life. 
And we have a tendency to inflate a particular fault or a wrong or whatever, and, and then we, we devalue a person. And what should matter to us most is relationship. I mean, that's what matters most to God is relationship with you. And I think some of us are in this tireless treadmill of trying to earn the love of God when he just loves you and he desires relationship with you. And that same type of heart should be in us that we shouldn't desire to have people running on a treadmill to earn our love or to earn our trust or our respect or whatever, but that we should be just loving them as a person because that's what matters most to us is relationship. So when I was a new believer, I was making the break, and I've talked about this many times, this concept of making the break. I don't know, you might be making the break right now, and what I mean by that is I was moving from my old life, my old ethic, my old concept, my old construct paradigm, like under the kingdom of this earth to like the kingdom of God. Like Things change. The way I approach situations and the way I approach people and the view of my own self, everything was changing, and I was studying the scripture, and I was about a year and a half into the faith. And I was working for a general contractor, and he was a believer, and I thought that was a win-win. I was like, oh my gosh, there's a guy, he loves the Lord, he was a worship pastor, I got to like, we got to sing, and we got to pray and read the scriptures together, and so I thought this is such a great relationship. What I didn't know is that he was later going to use that Christianity against me. Sometimes Christians, family, listen up, we can be very manipulative with our Christianity. Don't do that. So payday comes, and he goes, hey, you know what, I, I can't pay you today, how about Monday? And I was like, okay, well, I guess that's not that big of a deal. And so that went on for a while, and then it was like, well, how about next Friday I'll pay you? And I was like, oh, okay, that's a week, all right. And then another week goes by, and then the third week, and I finally went to him, and I was like, bro, look, I've got bills, uh, I've got to pay rent, and I don't have any food, and I'm hungry, and I'm working for you. Employers pay your people. And he, you, know what he, you know what he said to me? He goes, you know Jesus? He took a loaf of bread. And he prayed over it. And he blessed it. And he broke it. And it multiplied. You know what you need to do? You need to go home. And you need to take a piece of bread and pray over it and break it. And it'll multiply. And I, and I looked at him. <laughs> I said, you know what's funny? It's not bread that I feel like breaking right now. <laughs> I wasn't that far removed from my old life. So that old Christopher kind of came out. And what I wanted to do at that moment with this guy who owed me at that time, which was a staggering sum of money, where, where I was at financially, I wanted to throttle him. I wanted to take him and grab him by the throat. Say, pay me what you owe me. And apparently, I didn't physically do that, but apparently I was communicating enough that he reached into his pocket. He, did, he ended up paying me that day. That came back to me like a flood this week, that memory. As I've been looking at Matthew chapter 18, and this concept of what, what role does forgiveness play in relational fracture? What role does releasing debt play in our relationships, relationships with one another in the church, relationships as husbands and wives, parents, children, coworkers, neighbors, as people, as believers. What role does releasing of debt and forgiveness play? And how do we respond when somebody racks up debt? And I'm not just talking about financial debt. I hope you, you all can start to grasp. I'm talking about relational debt too. 
I'm talking about those times when people have disrespected us or they have hurt us or we've leaned on them and we've trusted them and they have let us down. I'm talking about big debts. I'm talking about spouses who cheat on spouses. I'm talking about uh, parents or siblings who victimize one another or victimize their kids. I'm talking about abuse. I'm talking about the raw injustice of living in a fallen world. And if we're not careful, we can all start to carry a pretty large ledger sheet of what people owe us. Do you guys understand what I'm talking about, ledger sheet? Like an accounting, what people owe. And we want to settle those accounts. And we want people to pay up. And if we're not careful, we can become pretty bitter people where we're bitterly waiting for people to pay. And then you're going to come to discover no matter what they pay, it's never enough. And so with that in mind, I want us to look at Matthew chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 15. I have a feeling. I, okay, I'm going to ask you a question. <laughs> you may not like this question. <laughs> and you may not want to think about this right now. But if you were honest with yourself, and nobody else knows what's going on in your head right now, is there a person in your life right now or in your past that when you think of them, you remember the thing they did to you wrong or the things, the, the, the debt that they racked up? And as you think of this person, you can almost remember the texture of the atmosphere of that moment. Maybe even the, the thought of their name or their face right now is making your blood boil just a little bit. Can you all think of anybody like that? Let me ask that from a different perspective. Because maybe that person is you. Can you think back on your past and you, maybe you look back and you think of all of the mistakes that you've made? If I had just known I could have just, if I could have been thinking generationally, I wouldn't have done that to my children. Or if I had just realized that the problem was me, that marriage would have made it. If How can God forgive me? Because maybe the person that you're indebted to most is yourself. So we're going to look at relational debt and the process of forgiveness and the importance of it. And we're going to first look at the, what does it mean to release somebody else? And then towards the end of the message, we'll talk about our own personal relational debt with ourself. But chapter uh, 18, verse 15, I'm going to call this the one-on-one -on -one principle. If somebody does something against you or sins against you, somebody give me an idea. What, what does that mean if someone sins against you? Tyler, what, what does that mean? Give me specifics. I want dirt, man. No, I don't. It doesn't have to be personal. Wait, don't tell, don't tell me what I, okay, what, uh, he's like, what, you want me to tell how you've sinned against me, Chris? I'll do it. I'll do it right now. Come on, y'all. Give me something specific. Steal. Gossip. Lies about you. Makes an assumption about you. Looks at you. Reads you like the dust cover of a book. Assumes everything about you and writes you off. Talks about you in front of people. Mocks you. Maligns you. Tears you down on Facebook. You guys get the drift? Somebody sins against you. So how do we respond? Well, the scripture says, go and tell five or six other people what they've done to you. Tear them down yourself. 
fight against them. Be critical. Flee from them. Abandon them. I always find it interesting when somebody comes up to me and goes, hey, do you know so-and-so has this against you? I'm like, no, I didn't know, but how do you know? Oh, I'm not the only one. This whole group of people over here knows too. We all know. How do you not know? I don't know. Probably because the person who has this beef hasn't come and talked to me. I really wish they had. The one-on-one principle says this. If someone sins against us, if somebody has done something wrong, we don't go and talk to other people about it. We go to that person and we say, hey, look, brother, sister, husband, wife, when this happened, that really hurt my feelings. Or when you said that, or when you did this, did you know one author has offered that 90 plus percent of all relational fracture could be cured if we just applied this one principle? Isn't that flippin' amazing? I look at that and I'm going, 90%? That's a pretty high percentage rate. If we would just walk up to the person and say, hey, look, this is what happened. Well, it's interesting because this, in this passage, Jesus is teaching about relational fracture, and he's talking about specifically in the community of the church. But I believe this one verse prompts a question by Peter. And Peter's an interesting character because we look at Peter through the Gospels, and he's kind of a knucklehead. I love Peter because there's times where he, like, he speaks. I don't know if you, you ever say something without thinking. It's usually dumb. So he, like, says something without speaking. And it, at times it's really spot on. At other times Jesus is like, you're the devil, get behind me. But this particular time, he asks a question that I'm really grateful he asks, like eternally grateful, but I'm also eternally irritated. Because it prompted a parable and a series of principles that Jesus then delivers that hurt. So look down at verse 21. Peter's speaking to Jesus. Because Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. And it'd be very easy to look at that just rigidly and walk up to him and go, hey, you know what? You're a jerk. And you really hurt me. And you owe me. So Peter's asking the question on the, tail, the, the coattails of that, of that statement and saying, so what do I do? Do I forgive this person? So G- Peter comes up and says this, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? How often? And he says as many as seven times, which may, may not realize is pretty magnanimous of Peter because in the context of this, this cultural setting of Jesus' time, the teachers and the rabbis taught that Three times was the max. Somebody could sin against you three times, and on the fourth time, you could relationally write them off as an unbeliever. So you do me wrong once, twice, three times the charm, and then you're done. Peter actually multiplies that by two and adds one for good measure, which is pretty significant. So you could basically, like in Peter's mind, he's like, what, is that, is that like Monday through Sunday? So you could sin Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday comes, you're done. And and Jesus oddly quotes just a very obscure passage of Scripture. In fact, he quotes a very sinful Lamech out of Genesis chapter 4, just for some of you Bible students out there. Jesus says this in verse 22. Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Uh, Some of your versions say 77 times, or some of your versions say seven times 70. Is that true? So, which has led some people to say, well, am I supposed to forgive 77 times or 490 times? And I'm going to tell you right now, it has nothing to do with the amount of times. It's the extent of forgiveness. How far does forgiveness go? How far does it go? To what extent is forgiveness extended? To which Jesus then delivers one of the most painful parables in the scriptures. Therefore, Jesus says, 
The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, what he's saying is, is that the economy of God, the kingdom of God, operates under a distinct set of principles and guidelines and ethic. And that we as children of, not only sons and daughters of God, but servants of God, we ourselves fall under those same guidelines, ethic, uh, structure. Just like we say, I'm a citizen of the United States, we fall under the guidelines and the structure and the laws of the Constitution that sets us apart from all the nations on earth. Well, that much more, we are citizens of a greater kingdom. And so he's now comparing the kingdom of God to this king, king over a kingdom who decides to settle accounts with his servants. So he pulls up his ledger sheet and he says, hey, there's a series of servants who owe and it's time for them to pay. And he brings first a, uh, probably the most sterling representative of the most indebted servant in history is brought to the king. And it's very easy to look at this guy and go, wow, he's really in debt. Um, it really painful to realize that this, this actually is indicative of all of us. Verse 24. When he began to settle, that is his accounts, one was brought to him who owed him how much? 10,000 talents. And we look at that and we're like, oh, I, that probably is a lot. Well, I'm going to assume that this was silver because 10,000 talents of gold would be astronomical and we're just going to assume it was 10,000 talents of silver. Now, the average laborer, so I'm going to do the general mathematics for you, the average laborer would earn roughly a talent of silver every 20 years. So one talent every 20 years. So you all math experts out there realize that this is 200,000 years worth of debt. How many of y'all think that's impossible to pay back? That's the point. It's impossible. The servant... It, it, not even ended that up to his eyeballs. I mean, it, it, thousand lifetimes he couldn't pay back what he owes here uh, in the text. And this gets brutally personal because really this isn't about money. It's about debt, sin debt. The Bible states that we all have sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. In fact, the wages of what we earn from that sin is death. And there's this common perception that in this life, all you have to do is have your good works outpace your bad, and then you earn eternity in heaven. Like, you can pay for it. That's like trying to pay off 200,000 years of debt working part-time for minimum wage. You're never going to be able to pay off the debt. It's impossible. That is why the Father had to send his Son. That is why Christ had to be crushed for our sins. He made the atoning payment for our sins. He had to pay because we couldn't. And so this, this particular servant here, recognizing his dire situation, is then faced with basically what is essentially a short order sale of his entire life. Look at verse 25. The king says this, since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, his wife to be sold, his children to be sold, and all that he had and payment be made. It's like when a bank assumes a house and then short sells it they're not getting what they are owed. They're just getting something. And so the king makes this decision to basically just short sell and just get something from this guy's life. And in desperation, and I think it's, it's that desperate recognition and awareness that I am I'm a sinner. I remember the moment when I cried out to God and I said, Father, please forgive me. I recognize I'm a sinner. 
and I need a savior. I cried out. And so the servant, recognizing his indebtedness, he cries out. And in fact, verse 26, the servant fell on his knees. I mean, look at the desperation here, imploring and begging and pleading, tears streaming down his cheeks. Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. I'll pay you all that I owe. And it, and it, and it just drips with desperation, doesn't it? I mean, we look at that, we're like, it doesn't matter how patient the king is. No matter how much time he's given, he's never going to be able to pay it back. He's hopeless. He's absolutely hopeless. And it's in that, that moment of hopelessness and desperation and crying out where we encounter this, this beautiful principle. And in, in, in the king's heart, it fills with splagizomai. Everybody say splagizomai. Splagizomai. It's a fun little Greek word, isn't it? It's... it's <laughs> a little splagizomai for lunch? I'll take some splagizomai. It's a funny little Greek word. In fact, it describes the heart of the father and the story of the prodigal that we've studied over the past two weeks. The heart of the father filled with splagizomai when he saw his youngest son from a distance and he ran and embraced him. This king's heart fills with splagizomai when he sees the desperate nature of his servant. And the dire situation that he is in. It is a word that is, it is, when you encounter it, it, it's beyond comprehension. It's the value and the worth. It's it's the valuing of relationship. It's compassion. It's pity. Um, It's rare. Man, is it rare. It's rare in our churches. It's rare in our homes, in our marriages. It's rare, man. It's rare at our offices. It's a word that means compassion, deep-seated care for another person. Verse 27, and out of splagizomai, out of pity uh, for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him. Splagizomai motivated two responses to this man's incredible debt. And I believe that these two responses inform how we're supposed to respond when somebody has racked up relational debt with us. I see two principles of forgiveness here. And I, I really want you to connect with these. Please don't tune out over this. If you, if you tuned out up until now, tune back in. Okay, I'm on channel 36. Just click on in. Hey, Facebook, I'm, we're right here. We're right here together. Somebody's at home going, he's talking to me. Two principles. Because often people will ask me, what does it mean to forgive somebody? So two essential aspects of forgiveness. The first is to release. See, this king first had to release the servant. From where? Debtor's prison. See, in this day and age, there was debtor's prison. You could lock somebody up for debt. So this, this servant is in debtor's prison. So the first is to release, to loose the bonds, to liberate, to swing wide the gate of debtor's prison and let them go free. Anytime we are carrying a ledger of debt that somebody owes us, we have essentially locked them up in debtor's prison, not physically, but in our hearts. The first step of forgiveness is swinging wide the gate and saying you can go free. And it's not a temporary work release. Where after a while you go, oh, wait, come on back. You're, you're locked back up. 
I mean, it's like totally gate swinging wide open. And that person, this is all hypothetically in our heart, but they come staggering out going, oh, am I free? Okay, cool. That's the first step of forgiveness is to release them. The second is to forgive them. The king did both. And that, that word to forgive, it means to write off, let go, or completely cancel a debt. Think about this. A business will write off bad investment. A bank at times will forfeit any future effort to collect. It means to cancel entirely. To forgive. It's paid. I recognize that there's a debt owed, but I'm releasing the debt. And I'm foregoing any future effort of collection, which is significant. I was reading one time an author describing his experience. He said, when my wife gets angry, she doesn't get hysterical, she gets historical. You guys hear what I'm saying here? We sometimes like to hold on to it. We like to hold on to at least a portion of it because we want to always be able to collect something. And if we're building a defense against somebody, we try to hold on to as much as we can because we're building up this defense to prove that you're wrong. And the whole time God is saying you need to release them and to forgive them. Like, love keeps no record of wrongs. And what's fascinating about this is this is the exact type of release and forgiveness we receive in Christ. When you receive Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, the bonds of sin and death, the chains are removed. You were given eternal life. You were released from the cell. God will never come up to you afterwards and say, that was only a temporary release. I need to put these chains back on. It is a total forgiveness where the debt is canceled. And by the way, Jesus is overpaid. That doesn't mean like try to go out sin his grace. But he's made a payment that is exceedingly greater than the debt that you owe. Does anybody rejoice in that? Like I rejoice in that. I know that I've been forgiven. There's never going to be a time where Jesus says, I forgave you, but now you owe me. And this really speaks to some of us who are putting ourselves in debtor's prison and, and you're not forgiving yourself for things that, that God has long since forgiven you of. Where you yourselves are putting shackles on. You yourself are shutting the door. All the while, the Lord is saying you were released. What are you doing in that cell? You are forgiven. What are those chains doing on your wrists? You have been liberated. Which is rad. I heard that woohoo back there, Miss Michelle. That was, yeah, yeah, yeah woohoo. But this is where it gets insanely personal. What type of impact should that have on our relationship with others? <laughs> this is the worst. Because if I have been released and I have been forgiven to that extent, like I owe 200,000 years, like that was me. 
And I fell down and I said, God, forgive me. Pastor King, I believe in you, Jesus. Please forgive me. And I was set free. How am I to treat others now? That is going to be the, the substance and the content of next week's message. Because we have a couple of options. This type of grace should have a massive impact on our life and it should have a massive impact on our relationships and how we treat others, how we view ourselves. Wow, it should radically change the way we view ourselves. I will stress that outside of Christianity, outside of this faith system, this worldview, there's no foundation for forgiveness. Did you know that there are many different things that we appreciate, that we value in this life, that apart from Christianity, they have no substance, no foundation? Content like grace, where else are you going to find grace? You're going to find grace out there in the culture? Based upon what? You're going to find forgiveness? Based upon what? You're going to find love? Greater love has none than this, and they lay his life down for his friends. Where are you going to find a greater love than that? Just don't exist. I'll tell you the foundation of forgiveness is forgiveness. The foundation of me forgiving somebody else is the fact that I've been forgiven. It's a sense of reciprocity where, wow, I have been forgiven an unpayable debt, and I can now be a releaser of debt. But that's so next week. But we will see when we do it wrong, which is the normal way. It's the fight, the flight, the ledger, the, all that. I'm going to tell you, it ain't pretty if we don't release the debt. Oh, it's downright gross. So let's look at the roadmap of reconciliation. Um, this is our ongoing discussion. If you have any ideas, like if there's stuff in here where you're like, you know, what about this situation? I would love to hear from you. You can email me. It's, it's a little hard on Sunday morning for me to process a lot of questions. So if you can email me, like think through it, chris at firewallfellowship.com. I would love to hear your thoughts on this roadmap. Because maybe there's something I'm not seeing. Maybe the Holy Spirit's speaking something to you where it's like, hey, this is going to be valuable. Because this is for our church going forward. This is going to be our roadmap. This is how uh, perfectly our, our married couples are going to work through conflict. This is how parents and children are going to work through conflict. This is how coworkers, this is how Christians here in this community are going to work through conflict. Because what I don't want anymore, I don't want to be in a church where conflict happens and then people are just gone. And I'm like, whoa, we need to do like Jesus stuff. Like living out our Christian faith is seeking things like reconciliation and restoration and forgiveness. And so here's our roadmap. Again, if there's any ideas that pop in your head, I'd love to hear about them. Um, first principle here, and we've talked about this before, you can't make a person reconcile. I've tried, doesn't work. Hey, we need to reconcile. Probably not the best heart anyway. You can't force this. And if it's true reconciliation, you won't even try to force it. Um, if you are seeking something in return, it's not reconciliation. That's manipulation. So if you're seeking to get something in return, like, I said sorry, it's your, your turn now. That's not reconciliation. That's relational manipulation. If you are seeking them to pay you something. Uh, reconciliation prioritizes relationship. You're able to look at this person and go, you know what? There's a hole in my life the size of you. And I don't like that. 
It's not prioritizing what was done wrong. It's not prioritizing the injustice. It's prioritizing the person. Strangely enough, it's exactly what God does with us. He prioritizes us as a person, pays the debt, and prioritizes relationship. Any God who's willing to crush his son prioritizes relationship. First principle, or first step, you must first forgive them. And we looked at the, the two principles today. That involves release, and that involves forgiveness. That involves opening up the jail cell, the debtor's prison, and that means releasing, canceling the debt. Paid in full. Canceled. And that means you have foregone any future rights of collection. That's the tough stuff, y'all. There's no easy answer here. For some of us, that's years of counseling. For some of us, it's just painstaking processing and journaling and working through it. And it's just a journey. And we're all on it, and it's hard. This stuff's really easy on paper. The first step, though, is forgiveness. Being able to completely forego any future ability to seek any payment. And it's in view of that we've been forgiven. That's the, that's the context of forgiveness. Secondly, you must seek them out. None of this is fun. You notice that? But this is the heart of the Father, right? Matthew chapter 5, verses 23, 12, 24 tells us we go seek out. Matthew 18, verse 15, the one-to-one principle, we seek out. Luke 15, 1 through 7, the shepherd seeks out the lost sheep. Verses 9 through 10, the woman seeks out the lost coin. Verses 11 through 32, the father seeks out the lost son. Can you imagine how different those parables would be, by the way, if it was like written the way we treat relationships? Sheep's gone. Oh, well, we'll get another one. Coin's gone. Don't worry, I'll make another one. Son's gone. Whatever. I'll have another kid. Which in my house is actually pretty possible. <laughs> Just keep having them. I'm not saying anything, Michelle. I don't know. What are you saying? But that, wouldn't it be different? Wouldn't those parables be totally different if they were about the way we treat relationships? You must seek the person out. And you may be waiting for that person to call you, write you, email you, text you, and all that. It's never going to happen. It may actually happen. I can't really say that dogmatically. I don't really know. That person may actually be writing. They may be walking a roadmap of reconciliation right now with you. And that's incredible. When both people are walking the roadmap, that is reconciliation pay dirt, man. Whoo! You got two people both walking the roadmap. There's about to be a party. So you seek them out. And you seek them out to do what? This is the next interesting step. Confess and ask for forgiveness for the hurts that you have caused. Well, I have, what, what do I have to ask for forgiveness for? I have no idea. But remember, there's this incredible potential in all of us to inflate our own virtue and inflate other people's faults. Like, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think but with sobriety. So you have released their debt and you're able to look at them and say, look, I asked you for forgiveness for the hurt that I've caused you. And this is not where we're going. I'm hoping that they are ready to confess too. Again, this is great. If both people are walking the roadmap because at this point you're confessing and they go, look, I've got to confess my sin too. And I'm sorry I hurt you. And you're like, I'm sorry I hurt you. And then there's hugs, and there's tears, and there's laughter. Wouldn't it be great if it worked out that way every time? But it doesn't. Which leads to our fourth principle. 
or fourth step. Leave the rest up to them. You have done the hard work. You have processed forgiveness. You have sought them out. You have confessed. And now you're like, and the relationship's ready. Whenever you're ready, the relationship's ready. Isn't that God's heart? Isn't that how he is? He's like, I've done everything necessary to reconcile a relationship with you. When you're ready, come to me. You who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Come on. And so that's so the heart of the Lord is that at that moment, you're able to look at them and you're saying, look, no pressure. You don't need to do anything in return for me. No expectations, no time limit. But when you're ready, there is a party waiting to happen. Amen? All right, Lord, thank you. Thank you for having that heart with us. Daddy, you wait for us like that. The father scanning the horizon, waiting for your son and daughter to return. You're like a king with servants who come with incredible debt and at a splagizuma you forgive and you release. And I get to stand here without any chains on knowing that I'm forgiven. but then I don't want to forgive others. Please, Jesus, forgive my heart. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us the power of reconciliation. You say we are ambassadors of reconciliation. Please, we need power. Heal our hearts. Heal relationships. We pray for parties to break out. Not only do you rejoice in heaven, when one sinner reconciles to you, but I believe you rejoice when one relationship on earth, when one marriage, when one set of friends, whoever it is, Lord, when you, we reconcile, you rejoice too. Lord Jesus, we love you. Your precious name we pray. Amen. <laughs> I have this little picture. Can you all see that? It's called the Polaroid effect. It was taken a week ago. It looks like it was taken in the 80s. It's my little boo-boo bear, little Jeremiah. You know, you, you all can't see this, but you know what's, what's crazy is when I look at him, it's like my father's heart. And you know daddy sees you like that? Did you know your daddy in heaven sees you like that? Like you're in his wallet, and he's like, oh, my little boo-boo bear. He probably calls you something different. I don't know what daddy's pet name is for you. Anyway, let's stand up. <laughs> I love that picture. Now go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Help the suffering. Support the weak and share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Till we meet again, same time, same place next week. And do not forget, family, you are loved. One more thing, Art. Do not forget the night of February 11th. The night of February 11th, the night of February 11th is a night of reconciliation. We're asking God to move powerfully. We're going to have a night of worship, but we're going to have a night where prayerfully we see God move in power so we can move in forgiveness and so relationships can be reconciled. If you have any relationship out there, anywhere and that resonates with you, that is your night, February 11th. You were loved. Go show the world. Go tell the world that they are too. Have a great week.